0: Hey everybody, Ray Lucchese here with Keith Townsend. Welcome to another sponsored episode of the Greybeards on Storage podcast, a show where we get Greybeards bloggers together with storage assistant vendors to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. This Graybeard on Storage episode was recorded on October 9th, 2020. We have with us t- today David Turek, CTO of Catalog DNA, a startup focused on bringing DNA storage to the world. So, David, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what Catalog DNA is up to?
1: Okay, thank you. So, I was um, the executive in IBM responsible for our high performance computing business prior to joining Catalog this summer. And I made that jump because I saw a real transformational opportunity with Catalog in terms of really bringing the concepts embodied in um, the efficiency of data encoding in DNA, coupled with the possibility of not only storing vast amounts of information for a long time with low energy, but also beginning to explore the concept of applying DNA for computing as well.
0: I've written some, some blog posts over the past couple of years, both on uh, the DNA storage uh, emerging technology, as you would say, as well as using uh, cellular or cell, cell logic kinds of structures to provide, you know, rudimentary computation and that sort of thing. Is that what catalog DNA is, is trying to bring together? Or, and...
1: our, our play is really centered on synthetic DNA, so it's not inside of a cell. We're not invoking cellular machinery to do anything here. Rather, we're taking the attributes of the DNA molecule and leveraging that to store information. And we think that there are ways to encode instructions in DNA as well to compute on that data.
2: Wasn't this something that uh, Microsoft was dabbling around with a few years ago?
1: A a number of companies have dabbled with it. Um, I think the A couple of key things that differentiate catalog from the previous efforts has been a very unique encoding scheme that we employ that radically reduces the amount of chemistry involved and really opens up opportunities for automation in terms of encoding data that other methods that people know about in the industry are simply incapable of pursuing.
2: No, I was gonna make the comment that, you know, we've kind of shied away from chemistry in computer science at least at down at, at the like the consumption level like the ideal of combining chemistry with uh with processors and such i know there's chemistry there but that stuff has come a long long way and in, it's invisible to us hard drives today
0: there's some chemistry there there's plenty of chemistry in the in the the magnetic you know, material that's used and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly.
2: So help, you know, kind of make this real for us. Because when I think about DNA, uh, store, uh, using DNA for like proper storage, it seems kind of con, uh, it seems at this time, it still seems like kind of Star Trek-ish science fiction, fiction versus real. Where's the innovation happened in the past few years?
1: So I'll, I'll speak to our innovation explicitly. And we can talk about other things going on in the market as well. But I think if we step back from a second and think about the problems that people face with respect to storing information, they fall into categories, It's volume, it's velocity, it's quality, it's energy, and it's longevity. And by longevity, I mean the ability to store data today that you'll actually be able to read sometime in the future. So if you look at tape technology as an example, and you look at the transition from LTO6 to LTO8, what you find is the change in the media and and other factors require you to do um, a rip and replace strategy with respect to your infrastructure. And this goes on all the time. It's a reason why people lament the loss of uh, floppy drives or even today, more recently, even CD players and CDs. Uh, Technology advances and the way in which you store data previously becomes put at risk as a result. So when you look at DNA, it is fundamental attributes for storing data. You find that it's got tremendous capability in terms of data per unit of density, maybe a million times greater than what you get with conventional uh, digital technologies. Um, You find that you can do things with really, really low energy. And I think critical to this is you can preserve this data forever effectively and know that no matter when in the future you want to get back at this data, you'll have a way to read it. Because DNA is a structure that will forever be read and capable of being read by a whole bunch of different kinds of current and future tools. Um, so that, that fixed nature of what the media is, is actually a tremendous strength as far as being able to give clients the confidence that what they store today will be retrieved sometime in the future.
0: It, it's hard for me to understand, and, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. You know, DNA seems to be such a uh, malleable structure. It, it's prone to, you know, mutations. It's got—it has to—to to, to some extent, as far as I know, it had to exist inside some sort of cellular mechanism. How that could pretend how that could per, be portrayed as as a as a permanent storage solution now I realize that you know they've been extracting DNA from i don't know you know humans you know that have died you know twenty thousand years ago, and it may be insects that have died sixty five million years ago and things like that but the, but even that extraction doesn't necessarily reconstitute the whole DNA strand does it?
1: Well that's nature and the way it handles the preservation of DNA. What we're doing is we're building DNA molecules synthetically so we construct them from the ground up. By virtue of doing that we can impart certain attributes to it which lend um, uh, longevity shall we say. One of the ways you do that for example is limit the length of the DNA molecule. Uh, The longer a DNA molecule is the more fragile it becomes kind of like A bamboo stick, if you will. You know, it's fine if it's four feet long. If it's 60 feet long, uh, it starts to become a little bit of a problem. So there are tricks that you can do, but we're not talking about uh, embedding this non-biological synthetic DNA into cells. We're talking about putting it in environments where it actually can be preserved effectively forever. I mean, we can desiccate it and put it in dry form, Uh, And in a container with argon gas, it'll last for tens of thousands of years, or we can keep it in the liquid form as well. But I think there's one other attribute of DNA, which is important to mention, which is it's really, really easy to cheaply create as many copies of DNA as you want. So when we ligate together uh, building blocks of DNA, you know, stitch them together, think of it that way. Um, and, and we try to amplify uh, these molecules that we create, we can, we can create a million copies in, a, in just a fraction of time. And so one of the ways to deal with the risk of, of data decaying, media decaying over time is you proliferate copies and you store them in a geographically dispersed kind of way. So there are a lot of features of DNA that are um, contrary to the way we conventionally think about the behavior of media that can be exploited in a lot of different interesting ways.
0: So, so I realize that replication is an inherent <laughs> aspect of the cellular machinery for DNA and that sort of thing. And But what you're saying is that even without using that sort of machinery, you can, through lab types of mechanisms, replicate a single strand of DNA a million times and, and without you know, expending any serious amounts of energy or time is that?
1: Yeah, that's correct. And and the flip side of that is that the uh, archives of DNA that we build are also capable of being accessed in a random fashion. I
0: always thought DNA strands were read sequentially.
1: Ah, well. So here's the difference, and and I suppose this characterizes the innovation of catalog versus other players. So. Historically, and if you review the literature, most of the efforts to encode data into DNA uh, focused on the base pairs A, G, C, T, and a scheme was imparted. You know, an A is a zero, 01, and a T is a 10, something like that. But that's a strategy that is really expensive, and really slow, and really consumptive of a lot of chemistry, because every time you do another base, there's a chemistry step involved. What we did is we borrowed sophisticated ideas from the world of Tinker Toys and Legos, and, and we built short strands of DNA, maybe maybe 25 to 50 base pairs in length, and um, and made them diverse in nature. And so think of a Lego box with a lot of pieces of the same size, but you know, a thousand, two thousand, a million different colors. And we can take those things and we can build structures out of them in the laboratory. We actually invented a machine to do this automatically. Uh, And by linking these different colored Lego pieces or different characterized pieces of DNA together, we can create molecules that impart two critical pieces of information. One, the value that you're trying to encode. And secondly, the order in a bitstream of data that you're trying to represent. And by virtue of doing that, every molecule that we produce lets you know where it should be in the bitstream and also what the value is, whether it's a one or a zero. And then, of course, because the world is binary, uh, we actually don't do anything with the zeros. We just assume if there's not something targeted for a particular space in a bitstream, it must be a zero. So we've elevated this to a point of automation by using building blocks and not base pair kinds of technology. Now, um, that's really efficient from an automation perspective. We just do ligation of these different Lego lock, L- Lego building blocks, if you will, to create these different molecules that represent the data we're trying to encode. But it's also very efficient in terms of the reading part of the equation, where we use, in our case right now, we're using Oxford Nanopore technology, which doesn't require the same degree of um, fidelity, if you will, that let's say uh, a, a aluminum machine might do in terms of synthesizing a DNA molecule. So you're not looking at base pair resolution; you're looking at strands of DNA resolution. Now, if
0: you take talking about Lego pieces with you know millions of different colors, that's great, but you'd have to have some way of identifying where each Lego piece fits into I'll call it the bit stream or the byte stream or the data stream and that sort of stuff. Would you? Are you encoding some sort of an address to each of these Lego pieces that says, okay, you belong at section 27 bit 14 or something like that? Is that how this works?
1: In a way, yes. But don't take the representation um, too precisely uh, in terms of what's happening physically. We actually have um, a lot of mathematics behind this embedded in different sort of algorithmic approaches using combinatorial mathematics and so on that actually will look at these universe of different building blocks we have and will make selections about which ones go together to convey the kind of information we want to encode. And we have this automated machine I refer to. We actually call it Shannon, after Claude Shannon. And, um, And it passes this webbing through the machine at a certain pace and we have modified um, inkjet print heads to deposit on this webbing <clears throat> a little ink drop, if you will, but the ink drop is actually composed of these Lego building blocks from DNA. Every dot can, can contain something different. In fact, we can actually do more than one kind of uh, data representation of a single dot if we wanted to, multiplexing, if you will. But if you look at a single dot, We put the pieces in there, and then under thermodynamical conditions, the right enzymes, the other kind of chemistry that needs to come along, they stitch themselves together in the right order. And then we have a whole collection of these dots, each of which contains a molecule that's been created, um, but those molecules now uh, convey both uh, value and location, and we can read those through Nanopore device and spit out what the data is on the back end. So writing and reading is uh, pretty direct.
2: So I'm not struggling with the concept of this immutable storage medium. This seems like we've heard this over the past few years. Perfect storage medium to your point. It doesn't decay. Uh, it's not going to change. A zero today is gonna to be a zero. If you're reading the DNA, the, form, the format of DNA just doesn't change. Uh, what I'm having a hard time Working my mind through is the concept of the fact that it's immutable means that I'm right once and I never change it. So how do you go from that to creating a usable? And I don't want to go all the way up to the file system, but a usable
1: uh, random data access set.
0: data storage or something like that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So so let's take random access for a second. So I create a file, using that word in quotes which is actually a bunch of DNA molecules in a solution, test tube, okay, that's my file, it's a test tube. And you say, but that's not representative of the kinds of way I think about files. Well, yeah, because we're dealing with chemistry, we're not, we're not dealing with um, you know, physics in a certain sense. But by virtue of having all that data, which every DNA molecule is identified in terms of what it represents in a bit stream, by virtue of doing that or encoding that data to represent something else for that matter, I can create a search molecule and that search molecule can be thrust into that file and it can map to and connect to what it's searching for. right? And so I can do that without regard to how big that file is in the same amount of time um, uh, continuously. So in other words, if it takes me, I'm going to make the numbers up, but if it takes me half a second, to find the search object uh, among 10 million, 10 million molecules, it's gonna cost me half a second to find that search object in 10 billion molecules or 10 trillion molecules. So there is no scaling of time as I execute these kinds of functions that take advantage of the chemical representations of the data. Tremendous feature when you're looking at problems that are um, uh, awash in data but have just maybe one little needle in that haystack that you're searching for, right? So you don't have to study everything. You don't have to look at every piece of data. You don't have to compare every piece of data to something else. You just throw that one molecule that represents your needle into that haystack, and voila, you've got it.
0: So it's almost like you're creating, you know, I want to say an index storage kind of thing where the the index is sort of the key portion of some value portion, which is encoded in this DNA and you create this, I'll call it search key uh, molecule, and you insert it into this um, test tube, I guess, and, and it will go out and find you know anywhere from one instance of this to, to billions of instances of, of this and without any additional work and stuff like that. And once you've got that, um, that key and, and, and its associated data, <laughs> you can read this out somehow. So it, aren't they all
1: existing in this solution at the same time? Yeah, they are. So what you do is you pass a solution through this Nanopore device and it'll read these molecules and it'll uh, read the molecule that you've been searching for. And that'll be represented by the Nanopore device in digital fashion, which you can then convert into conventional ones and zeros. And there's your answer
2: what what type of compute is needed what what the level of compute needed to do that processing
1: so so there are multiple levels of computing in this so let me let me begin by creating a picture of the device first and uh and I'll preface my comments by saying that what we're talking about is a confluence of hardware software and chemistry in one device right Now that's orthogonal to the way we ordinarily think about computing or storage. We think about that as being the confluence of hardware and software, chemistry is not not involved, but here it's different. So imagine if you will, uh, kind of a conveyor belt um, that uh, spins out this polypropylene sheet that enters into a machine, and it goes under these print heads and the print heads under the control of a software program will um, formulate Uh, the contents of these building blocks of DNA that go into a particular drop, that go through a particular nozzle in the printhead, that goes to a particular spot on this webbing that's going through the machine. So the first thing is you have um, a stack of software that's orchestrating the uh, behavior of the machine, okay? That webbing then carries on and enters into kind of a wet Lab process also automated, where all the DNA molecules are incubated, and what that does is it causes the the Lego pieces to connect to one another in the right way. And then after that, it comes into another stage in the machine, where it just gets put and deposited into this fluid. Uh, Essentially, gets the DNA gets scraped off of the polypropylene webbing. The polypropylene webbing is discarded. And the DNA is what's retained in the solution. All right. So there's this sort of electrochemical mechanical machine that exists. That does all this writing process,
0: I'll call it, right?
1: This is the writing process. And then that end step where you have everything in what we call a pooler, it's just a collection of DNA in this liquid, is then taken to a wet lab station at this stage. And um, the volume is reduced and the DNA is... Uh, isolated to the extent that it's now prepared for entry into a um, a sequencer, if you will, either nanopore or luminar or something like that. As I said, we use Oxford nanopore. And then those molecules are threaded through the nanopores in in the device and um, the software associated with that device, not from catalog, but from Oxford, will read that DNA and represent it in a file format digitally which we will then reinterpret in terms of all the transformations we've done to the data going through the machine and spit it back out in conventional data formats.
2: And this is, if you're working with Lumina today, if you, any of these types of devices, this is the part that isn't new. We we read DNA. We, we're, we're good. We're pretty good at it. Relatively slow process. Uh, uh, if you're, if you're trying to use this for traditional storage met- methods, but the amount of data that it stores is incredible. Uh, so I, that part I get, it was the writing part that was not as clear to me, but now I'm seeing the, the challenge and the innovation is in the writing and indexing and, and making this a a usable format in, for compute.
0: Something like this technology, let's say you're a super secret intelligence organization and you've been recording... Uh, all the email traffic throughout the internet. And you were able to encode all this information into DNA and put it into this uh, this end solution. And let's say you wanted to search for the word, I don't know, um, terrorist or something like that. You'd create a terrorist search mo- molecule and insert it into this solution. And somehow you'd be able to come out of that with every e- every email in the world that's that's in that solution that uses the word terrorists,
1: Con- conceptually that's correct. Um, so it's random access, and again, the the matching of a molecule or set of molecules that constitute a search target can be injected into the solution, and it can come out uh, with the presence or absence of that particular search item in the solution. Uh-
0: Okay. So now you have to talk about, you, you mentioned the fact, that, you mentioned a couple of facts. You mentioned volume. So the volumetric efficiency of something like this is millions of times, I think that's the word you said, more efficient or more dense, I guess, than, than common uh, magnetic or electronic storage.
1: Yeah. From a volumetric perspective. So last year we wrote the English language contents of Wikipedia. In, uh, in DNA so demonstration of technology if you will and the, the entire contents are in a tube that's about the size of one of the finger joints in your hand in terms of length and about the diameter of a pencil so it's a very very small um, tube containing all the English language content of Wikipedia encoded in DNA
0: is that's one image of one replica or is it multiple replicas of the wikipedia at that point
1: that's just one it's it's solution and and we can make that smaller by desiccating it and and rendering the dna in solid form put it in the pellet or something like that so yeah the the it's about six order magnitude difference a million times more dense
0: than like lto8 or something like that yeah okay okay (laughs) Okay, so if you really wanted to, let's say, have a random access device that was read writable and such, you would use some sort of a search module molecule to, you know, find the data that you want to update and some sort of, I'll call it DNA kinds of computation to swap out the old data and insert the new. Is that how this would work?
1: so so when dna molecules are read through a nanopore device they're actually destroyed right
0: Uh, okay so
1: so one of the things we do is we keep multiple copies and um one can simply boost the signal if you will of the new piece of data in the existing copy so you don't have to rewrite everything you can just essentially write the missing molecules and add it to what you currently have in fact Uh, that's the way you would do addition with DNA as well. You would take two different test tubes, if you will, uh, representing different values, and you you could put them together. And with chemistry, you could create something completely new, which would represent the addition of um, tube A with tube B. So um, it's it's a um, disquieting kind of representation for someone who may have only experienced uh, conventional digital kinds of media for storage and computation because it seems like we're oh i don't know bypassing a lot of the conventional ideas here but that's the whole point it's really quite transformational in terms of uh feature and function that we can exploit here
0: yeah well you know at some point you have to talk about the speed of access and the speed of writing and that sort of stuff but uh it's it's you know, I've been I've been associated with other storage technologies that have come and gone and, and and the challenge has always been, you know, if they're only a factor or or maybe two of where, you know, current technology is, by the time those things get into production ready mode, you know, the electronic media and magnetic media have already caught up. Six orders of magnitude, they may never catch up.
1: They may never catch up, especially with some of the limitations that come out of the world of physics, right? You see that with Moore's Law today as an example. Um, no such thing as a zero nanometer technology, right? But but I think here, um, we, we know we have a ways to go. However, we also know the ways to get there. So we have, for example, we, we write in a megabyte per second range now, right? And reading is capacitated by the speeds of, of uh, sequencing devices. So um, as startup company, um, and you noted this earlier in your comment, we focused on where we could make innovation first. And it wasn't to try to displace the sequencing community. It was to try to really find something that was very innovative and very effective on the synthetic biology side of this and writing uh, DNA and encoding data into DNA. Um, But we know how to dramatically increase the speed of writing DNA. Um, And one of the things that's helped us, of course, is we built a machine to do this. I think a lot of what you see going on in academic institutions and other places is still fundamentally wet lab chemistry. And so everything is sort of abstract and theoretical. We're sitting here actually measuring the speed of devices operating to produce this in an automated fashion, which is the only way you get to reasonable competitiveness. That's point one. Point two, um, we do understand sort of the inexorable pursuit of faster, better, cheaper. Uh, I spent decades in IBM working on a variety of projects. So I'm intimately involved with the, or knowledgeable of the concept. So we're not targeting our end game here to be where storage is today, we're looking 10 years out into the future, although we expect to be commercial substantially in advance of that. The reason you look 10 years out into the future is, you want to test yourself and explore the possibility of other sort of disruptive ideas that might come along. So the, the hidden message in what I'm saying is, we have a play that we're running today, but we are far from being dogmatic that this is the only way or even the best way that's still to be discovered and implemented. But given where we are today, we know how to improve um, the cost of where we currently are by five orders of magnitude. And we know how to increase the speed of where we are by probably four to five orders of magnitude. So um, these are targets for us that we can get to in reasonably short order. And I think that when you think about markets, so let's step away from technology for a second because you alluded to this in, your, in your, uh, the predicate of your question when you talked about how do you, how do you displace existing technology that's moving ahead at the same time and why, do, why would customers jump to something when they're still getting efficient bang for the buck for what they've always used. And I think that's the motivation for why we're exploring this idea of merging the idea of compute with storage in a single kind of environment. Uh, Storage today has been principally conceptualized as a very passive device. You put data in storage and you pull it out when you want to compute on it. The problem is every time you do that you incur a cost and you incur latency in terms of getting insight from the data you've stored. What we'd like to do is see if we can just merge these ideas together, and it doesn't have to be universal, doesn't have to be for every kind of data or every kind of algorithm or compute, but some substantive set of combinations of those things to be coalesced in a single environment to take storage devices away from being passive and make them active.
2: If if I'm hearing you correctly, let's say that I'm a scientist working on a drug discovery. Today's when I'm sequencing data or if I'm getting DNA sequencing, I need to inject that into my magnetic storage or my flash storage, et cetera, to work on it. So in theory, what you guys are trying to enable is putting the compute right next to that DNA level data in its native format, having the compute execute across that data set as close as it is. is, And I eliminate this problem of being able to process well, transfer petabytes of data and process that data when I need it so I can create distributed algorithms, et cetera, to access the data where it's at, which is a big, big problem in farmer getting the sequencing data from Germany into Chicago. If that stuff can stay local to Germany and the computer's right next to it, that that's a powerful construct.
0: Imagine the scale-out capabilities. If you could... If you could effectively create a compute molecule and a storage molecule that exists in the same test tube with the capabilities of DNA replication, that sort of thing, you could create a gazillion copies of this thing in, I don't know, minutes, right?
1: Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's really the objective. So we're, we're trying to get away from this um, model, this dichotomy of storage and hardware being separate things. And as you said, really combine them in a single environment so that, for example, I create a a data archive in DNA and I throw compute molecules into it and I put it in the closet and I go out to lunch. And with very low energy, very low everything, um, it's computing for me. And, you know, maybe I let that go on for a month. Maybe I let it go on for a year. You know, there are simulations that people do today in supercomputers that last for more than a year. So so I think there's a lot of imaginative uh, thinking that needs to be brought to bear here to understand the domains of possibility where this can be applied. And, And the interesting thing from Catalog's perspective is we're actually in the midst of executing proofs of concept with a number of companies. Notice I didn't say universities, I didn't say laboratories, but companies who are trying to see the efficacy of this approach for the kinds of problems that they see forthcoming in the data world. And I will also say the following thing. These are non-trivial companies. These are Fortune 100 companies who are really, really quite astute in terms of the evolution of storage technologies, etc. But they're intrigued by this because they see limits to the conventional approaches that this might overcome. Now, they don't And I I would agree with what I'm about to say, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't say it, but nobody is looking at this as a complete displacement, for example, of the tape industry, but it can be a very, very useful augmentation to the compute storage environment in general. And to that extent, it's quite synchronous with the way people are thinking about the evolution of computing today, which is classic von Neumann architectures, the invocation of AI, the invocation of quantum, all these different things are being looked at to work in concert, which, you know, in, in in a very crude way is nothing more than saying get the right tool for for the problem at hand.
0: Yeah, but, you know, if you're able to do computational ac- actions in, in the solution, you know, the, the, Turing proved a long time ago that, you know, with a very limited set of functionality, you can pretty much create any universal program. So, I mean, once you pass, and it's not that difficult a barrier in my mind from a from a function set perspective, you know, a limited minimum number of functions, you can do anything in this thing.
1: Well, that's correct. I mean, we, we know we can create Boolean operators, and by virtue of doing that, we can essentially do anything, but you also have to juxtapose that sort of theoretical notion with behavior of clients in the marketplace our ambition is not to do research forever but rather to get in the market with commercially viable products and to that end we're not trying to solve all the problems up front we're trying to be super pragmatic and pick out a handful of problems that we can tackle focus and provide value in short order to demonstrate the utility of the path we're going down and of course once we do that uh, i think people will understand the transformational nature of this and investment will occur and uh new ideas will emerge and and a lot of these ideas will will be pursued at speed
2: yeah i spent 3 years at abb and i can tell you without a doubt this is there's applicability today easily uh the these are real real world challenges especially when you get to natural uses of where uh dna data is used today in research and how transforming it from its existing format into a different format is creates a tremendous amount of inefficiency and if we can fix that and get compute as close as possible to that original set of data and it's possible because uh computers compute is going to become free at some point and this is probably one of the first applications or at least Companies that I've talked to, looking at how do you leverage compute? Compute will to never the
0: be free, Keith. Come on, There's always well, a relative, compute will level.
2: be the cheaper. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So the there's this there's this concept that you know, uh, and a sixteen z talked about it. We'll refer, I, I'll send you the link to reference it. But at some point, obviously Moore's law is not that. Uh, we're going to double or triple whatever in and compute uh, capability, but we're going to continue to half the cost of compute capability to the point where it's practically
0: and that's, free. That, and that's the current roadmap of semiconductor technology today. You know, they're they're on this roadmap to have the cost, maybe cause it to be vertical, horizontal, you know, whatever, but they'll try to, you know, they will have the cost of computational uh, capabilities over the course of time. Yeah, and and
2: one of the things that I wish we had time to dev into is what happens when we cross the point where it's cheaper to throw CPUs at data than it is to move data. Right now, it's for some data sets, it's cheaper to move it closer to the... And this is, again, the problem that I ran into practically in pharma, that it was cheaper to move the data to the compute than to move the super compute to the data. When is good enough enough, and where's that strike? And that's that's, a whole other conversation.
0: And this sort of technology turns that on its head, right? Because the compute, if you can do the compute with, I'll call it DNA processes, and you can do this storage with DNA processes, which we've already proven. Then uh, there's no reason to move it out, right? To some extent, uh, I, you know, there might be some display <laughs> technology requirements and stuff like. That. You know, the other question, of course, David, is you know how how big is this device that reads and writes this thing? I mean, you know, normal storage devices are on the order of a pack of cards these days, and, and can hold terabytes of data.
1: Right. So that's that's the. The, the device, but what was used to create that device? What was used to put the data into that device? So our, our so so our machine um, right now, and there are pictures on our website, by the way. Um, we're in Boston. Is think of an L-shaped object. It's uh, about 14 feet long on um, one leg and about 12 feet long on the other, maybe about three feet wide. Because remember, it's it's incorporating hardware, software, and chemistry all in one one device. Um, We know how to shrink that to desktop. That's not the issue, right? What's the issue is what are the encoding schemes that need to be represented? What are the computational problems that need to be pursued? Because those by themselves may dictate the nature of the way we evolve this machine over the course of time. So our proof of concepts are actually meant to be as informative as possible to what the next generation of the machine should look like. Is there a market for desktop things? Um, do we need to modify the encoding scheme to encapsulate a way in which we wanna do computing different than, than we would do it today? These are all things we're trying to learn in the existing proof of concepts we're running.
0: So, I mean, uh, the proof of concept would be, you know, a company comes to catalog DNA and says, I've got this data problem. It's petabytes of data. I want to be able to store it, read it, and and, and have it available for, you know, the cost of all, near nothing, and 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 have it stay around forever. I mean, the the video archives for these move movie theaters and no, the movie companies that 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 produce these uh, you know videos. Uh, the film is rotting, the 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 digital storage requirements change every, you know, let's say every decade that ha- forces them to move from one technology to another. If they could put all this stuff on DNA once, they could have a million copies and, and never have to do it again.
1: Is yeah. that what you're saying? Uh, absolutely what I'm saying.
0: Wow. This sort of stuff is mind-blowing. I mean, yeah. I, <laughs> I've even talked to you know reporters about DNA technology you know DNA storage and stuff like that, and I said you know it's all great and it's all wonderful and it's got the miniaturization it's got it's got uh, you know length of long longevity and that sort of thing, but the cost and and time to read and write it were a significant problem. You mentioned megabytes per second. is that what your device can do today? You can write megabytes a second into DNA
1: yeah, so so the way this will this will transform over the course of time we will make adjustments to the mechanical attributes of the machine we will make adjustments to the chemistry we'll make adjustments to the algorithms that are governing this and all these levers and dials that i'm alluding to can be turned in ways to have an impact on speed performance quality all these kinds of things Um, and um, i wouldn't say These are uh, easy problems, but they're tractable. And we understand the nature of the way they need to be attacked to get to the kinds of improvements we're alluding to. So, our expectation is that within a relatively short order let's say 18 months, something like that we could be at a write cost comparable to tape, write cost comparable to tape. And we have to do innovation on the read side. So until that innovation comes to fruition and we're thinking about what that innovation should be, um, it's the technology we have is gonna appeal mostly to those institutions that have uh, write once, read rarely kinds of requirements, okay? So the movie archive or something like that uh, as sort of a deep archive in case something goes wrong with the conventional media that you have. Think of it in a sense as sort of a Um, An analog to the seed repository that sits up in the Arctic Circle in Norway, where uh, it's stored there for the sake of preservation of the history of all these different um, uh, plant examples, but it's not meant to be uh, opened every day for somebody to look at it and use it and inspect it. We have to get the read side of this in a rough equivalency to the right side, and then you start to see an expansion of of the domains of opportunity. And then at the same time, that's just a conceptualization of using DNA as an archive-like device. But then the kicker here is, let's figure out the compute side of this and begin to put in place the mechanisms by which we can compute on the data that we're we're archiving. And that gets us to this point of making storage active and not passive. And then you see a tremendous growth and opportunity in the marketplace.
0: Yeah, it's exponential. Yeah. I, you know, I've written blog posts on on technology that, that was talked about, oh, gosh, over the course of the uh, last couple of years about how using cellular mechanisms to perform, you know, Boolean operations and things of that nature. So, I mean, it exists today, at least in research form, to do these sorts of things. Um, you also mentioned, I, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned earlier on. You're not using normal DNA, per nope. se, the AG TD. I'm not even sure if those are the right acronyms, <laughs> AGC but uh, using, using synthetic DNA. Yeah,
1: Can synthet- you explain what that is? Yeah, synthetic just means we're building the molecule using the architecture and principles of DNA. So it still uses the same uh, uh, bases. It still uses the same sugars and so on. And it invokes the same kind of machinery for replication, et cetera. But it's not derived from any sort of living animal. It's all built in a laboratory, and you can actually buy snippets of DNA in bulk quantities from commercial vendors today uh, who supply the research community worldwide uh, for people who are looking to do different kinds of things. None, as far as I know, or very few, looking to encode data in it, but for other purposes. So we've simply leveraged that industry just like we leveraged the sequencing industry to give us the building blocks that we've used to support the innovation we're doing on the writing side. Um, the DNA molecules we create are not biologically active, so there's no risk of taking something that we produce and sticking it in the cell and, I don't know, getting uh, Godzilla or something like that. Or um, Wikipedia
0: or something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, right, a walking living encyclopedia. So. But you, you put gaps in the DNA, you put different stops in the DNA, you do a lot of different things so that it, it has no biological activity whatsoever. And in fact, if you tried to render it to have biological activity, the cost of doing so would be such that you might as well just start from scratch. So we, we've taken those kinds of precautions because we know there are people always trying to do crazy things, um, but we're, we're pretty secure from that perspective.
0: All right. Well, this has been great. Uh, Keith, any last questions for David before we close?
2: No, my, my mind's pretty much fried. I'm, I'm guessing <laughs> that
1: most listeners are as well.
0: I would say so. My mind's certainly fried. David, anything like you'd like to say to our listening audience before we close?
1: Yeah, check out our website. We're catalog DNA in Boston, and you'll see pictures and videos of our machine, and you'll see white papers, and you'll see pictures of the team.
0: All right. Well, this has been great. Thank you very much, David, for being on our show today. You're welcome. And that's it for now. Bye, Keith. Bye, Ray. And bye, David. Goodbye. Until next time. Next time, we will talk to another system storage technology person. Any questions you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. Please review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as this will help get the word out.